everyone, it's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the blog site, YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play podcast, where we talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. Back again this week with Hugh. Hugh, we're the business student. We're, gonna be, we're talking about business myths. And if you saw the last show in this series, Hugh compiled uh, a whole bunch of different business myths that viewers had sent in. And we're going to review some. Today, we're, we're more on the HR stuff. Uh, so what do we got? We got a whole bunch of myths about teams and uh, employees in small business. Why don't you start things off for us, Hugh? Sure. So let's start with teams. Uh, this is a myth from Ethan. And um, he's quoted as sending this in. A big myth is that a small business can't afford to hire the best people. That can be literally true in some cases, of course. But if the business has the cash to support it, then top flight team members can allow the owner to concentrate on higher leverage activities. Competent managers are especially important for preventing burnout in owners. Every time I've stretched to bring on someone really good, they've paid for themselves many times over. Mm. Yeah, what a great, so the myth is that small businesses can't afford to hire the right, the best people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, so Ethan is saying that he's stretched to pay extra to get the best employees. What, what I've observed um, time and again is that a lot of the people who are actually the best, most qualified employees in a lot of different disciplines um, aren't even in the market for small businesses to have access to because they're focused on building their position and career within some kind of big company. Um, and, and so, but here's, here's what I will say is I think that a lot of people have the potential to grow and to develop themselves as managers and become competent managers. The biggest problem that I see with small businesses is that many of the small business owners won't let people, they, they will not um, grant the power they will not delegate the authority to let people actually fulfill the role. And a lot of it has to do with the DIY and sort of perfectionist tendencies that I see in a lot of small business owners. If small business owners were great at delegation, no one would ever sell a small business. They would just hire people to run it for them and then they would retire and, mm-hmm. and continue to manage, you know, oversee the manager. And that's not what happens. What happens is a lot of small businesses with an owner manager, uh, they want to sell and they sell it to somebody else who's going to become an owner manager nine times out of 10. That's often what happens. Um, Maybe a a better strategy than looking to hire top quality um, people is to essentially allow people to grow into these top notch employees and managers. Yeah. And I think this is where you get a lot of people out there who will say things like I hire for attitude. Like they'll, they'll look for the person who seems like they're going to be comfortable and decisive and be able to be taught, you know, and given the skills through working with the owner to be able to do the management job. And, you know, a lot, I've run into a lot of small business owners who um, gleefully, hire people that the big corporations probably wouldn't touch. So someone who has a lot of experience, but never went to university, for example, some HR departments of big companies may not even look at that person because they may deem that minimum qualification might be a university degree. 
small businesses don't have to follow those rules. They'll, you know, they'll meet anyone who they think can do the job. And if they get a good feeling from the person, they'll give them a chance. Hmm. But at the end of the day, do you think it's worth really um, investing a lot of money in searching for top talent? Here's, here's the, here's the problem with this myth, the way Ethan presents it is if you were a small business and you managed to put together $200,000 to pay the former VP of a larger business to come mm-hmm. in, in that larger business, that VP had access to other resources, technology resources, you know, other people, et cetera. If you brought that person into the small business they might set a strategy and then look to delegate certain things and find that those parts are not there. And so even though the person may be worth a lot of money in the corporate world, they may not be as effective in a place where, you know, we have to bootstrap more. We have to figure out, you know, the, the, you know, I don't know, the the simple workaround ways to get things done, you know, in, in a large corporate environment, the, maybe they have a programmer on staff and they say, put up this questionnaire for our customers to answer. In the small business, it's, oh, well, let's use our free Google Forms account or what have you, right? Mm-hmm. And so in the small business world, it's often about figuring out how to do more with less. And some of the things that people have to learn how to do don't necessarily jive with what goes on in the corporate world. I know that when I completed my business degree. This is one of the, when I, I claim often it took me 10 years to unlearn some of the stuff they taught me in school because in school, you're always learning about how it's done in a big corporate environment. And in the world of small business, it often doesn't work that way. Um, you know, in, in, I rarely in business school, did we ever look at it, you know, what companies do in a cash flow crisis as far as you know, moving money around and stuff, whereas small businesses run into that all the time and end up, you know, drawing cash advances or delaying payment on certain things. And a lot of those skills that are required to make the small business function, you don't need necessarily that kind of creativity in the big business a lot of the time. So, mm-hmm. so it really, there's kind of different sets of skills I find, um, you know, yeah. So, so I would say that I kind of agree a little bit with the myth, even though Ethan uh, doesn't and his experience is different. Um, what else do we have here as far as team myths? So the next one would be, uh, we have the right people in place. We just need to equip them better from mm. Eric. So, so this kind of addresses what I said about resources. So if you have the right salespeople in place, but they're having difficulty processing transactions because there's a lack of a, you know, customer service system or ERP system or something like that, we need to get Salesforce or something like that. That would be an example of what, of what we're talking about there. And um, is that a myth? Well, you know, there's lots of businesses out there still running on paper forms. So, so it's a question of, do you want to be the most effective or do you want to try to patch things together so that they kind of work? I don't know. It's if you can't make the sale, investing in more technology and tools is likely not going to help you make the sale. 
the, 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 you know, you have to ask why is it that the transactions aren't being completed and get to the root of the problem. And rarely is it, you know, because of a lack of technology or reporting. It's, it's, we invest in that stuff to make things more efficient. The, the basic, you know, value proposition for the customer has to be there from the beginning. So you would say that often the, the underlying problem is actually, in fact, the people. Well, or either that or what they're offering, you know, so either the people aren't making the sales or the whatever's being offered for sale, there's something wrong with it that people don't want it. Hmm. Yeah. So I would agree with that myth. Um, and then I see there's another one here from Eric as well. The complainer is the real problem. Yeah. I, you know what? I don't have enough experience with uh, managing teams in the field to, to, to have run into enough complainers to know if this is a myth or not, but um, I don't like complainers. Do you? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe this is real. I don't know. I think that it might be worth listening to to what they're actually saying, because maybe they're bringing up some good points that, that others are just not willing to, to voice. Well, it's true. Um, what else does Eric say? He's got another one here. He also said, uh, you can do this without help. So, so is that a myth? I don't know. Again, to me, it has to do with matching, um, you know, actual capabilities and skills with what's being demanded of someone. You know, getting back to my dentist example, I could want really hard to deliver, you know, dentist services, but I'm not a dentist. Right. I think it also relates to when you're talking about uh, business owners and how they, how they don't want to, uh, to delegate or they're reluctant to do that. And so they, they believe that they, they can do it all without help, but in reality, maybe they, they, they can't. Well, I've seen that a lot too. And, and there's a trap that business owners can fall into and it's, where they become dependent on turning to other people to kind of give them direction and, and, you know, guidance in the business. I've, I've always said that if you're going to engage with a consultant of some kind, it should be because of a specific knowledge or skill deficit. So if you need to implement an inventory system in your business, because your business is growing and you just can't manage it with whatever you've been doing, then you can hire an inventory specialist that can come in, establish a system, set up a warehouse system for you, ordering all that kind of stuff, SKUs, and they come in, they provide the solution, they teach you how to use it, and then they're gone, right? Mm. But, but some kind of consultant that comes in and shows you how to run your business, as the owner of the business, you should know where you're going. It, that kind of stuff has to come from, from the head of the ship. Are you in favor of business owners going out and finding themselves a mentor and a sponsor? Um, I, I, you know, relationships like mentorship relationships, I think are valuable. I think that mastermind groups are really important for business owners where they can meet with other business owners who are in different industries, which is critically important because sometimes you will face a problem that's been licked in a different business. And you can bring that to a mastermind group and you can say, this is the problem I'm having. And people from another industry will say, oh, well, 
well, we have that too. And this is what we do. And you can kind of borrow solutions from one business to another. And it gives you a forum for opening up and, and discussing things that are going on in your business with people who are at the same kind of level. The ideal mentor is someone who's been where you are. So, you know, if, if you're, you know, a 40 year old business owner with a business that has a couple million dollars in sales, your mentor maybe is going to be the 55 or 60 year old business owner or someone who's just sold a business who was larger than yours because they're further ahead of you on that road. So they can kind of give you heads up and guidance and ideas about what's coming up for you. So you can be better prepared. That's, that's what I see. You know, the, I teach people about stuff, specific stuff about buying and selling businesses. There are people out there who just sort of teach in general about business. And sometimes we get into those topics and it's interesting, you know, sometimes to listen to those things and to hear different ideas, but I would want to learn from someone who's been there. So I've had people before, uh, for example, in the janitorial industry, who said, you know, I want you to be my business coach. I want you to coach me through this. And I'll say, well, when you're getting ready to sell your business, I'll be more than happy to, to help you prepare evaluation and give you some ideas about what you need to do to make your business more valuable. But if you're looking for someone to coach you through the day-to-day of this, then go and find yourself a business coach for janitorial companies, ideally someone who's built up and sold one that's much bigger than yours so that they can actually give you the day-to-day, you know, advice on things that you run into because it's, you know, every industry is specific and unique and there are tricks and shortcuts that experienced people are going to have. And to me, that's what provides a lot of the value. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And there's another one here from Justin. What, uh, right. So the hardest ship to sail is a partnership. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there's a certain amount of truth in this myth for one reason. And that is a lot of times people get into partnerships because they're afraid and they don't want to do it alone. And they're instead of actually identifying complementary people or sometimes a partnership can be between two businesses, right? Where you identify two different complementary entities and you, you work together if you're, if you're getting into a partnership because you bring things to the table and the partner brings things to the table and you're mature and experienced as a business person, you create some kind of org structure where you plan out who is responsible for what, and then you delegate authority. And, you know, if, if that person, if one partner is in charge of marketing and there's a marketing budget, then it's not a group decision every time they want to buy an ad on the radio. They are in charge of that. The problem occurs when people get into it and they're not sophisticated or experienced business people. They believe that everything's going to be management by committee and then they start to disagree about things. And then instead of actually leveraging the talent of two different people to get twice the work done, you end up having to have agreement on every major decision, which means you've got two people doing one person's job and it actually works against you. And if there is a lack of maturity, what ends up happening is, If one person says, you know, no, I'm in charge of marketing. I decided to buy the radio ad, for example, and the other person really doesn't like that. 
then it can carry over from the business relationship into their friendship because almost every time these partnerships in are between people who know each other before the establishment of the business. And so then you start to have conflict within the friendship. And so one of the most common things that people call me about on clarity is dissolving partnerships because they've gotten to a certain point where they, they know that one of them has to go and they want some idea about how they can, they can disassemble the partnership that they built up. And if there's a lack of formality there, then it can be really complicated to do that, you know? And in some cases, businesses end up being sold to third parties just so that the partnership can come to an end. And you feel that could be avoided if they got into the partnership for the right reasons. And did the proper planning and organization. Hmm. So deciding who's going to do what, what the responsibilities are, how decisions are going to be made. You work that out so that you can run like a real business. Even if, you know, in my program, build a business that people will want to buy. I teach people how to create an org chart with, by role instead of person, instead of the people. And so you could have 15 roles in a business and only have two people, but their names are in every box. And as long as they do what's in their box, everything should function. And they both recognize that, you know, if you're responsible for, for buying ads, for example, then that's your job. You got to do it. Mm -hmm. It's not my job. Now, a lot of the times, certain decisions have to go to the board level, which is up at the top of the org chart. So a decision on buying a $50,000 truck or something, yeah, it's going to be done at the boardroom. And guess what? There's two board members. It's the two partners. So it's, it's about figuring all that stuff out in advance so that you don't start to step on toes and everything as you move forward with the business. So you've said that people will get into partnerships because they're kind of scared of going into business alone. What would you say to those people who are scared of getting into business alone? Well, you know, there's all kinds of stuff said about getting out of your comfort zone and everything. I think that you can be fearful of the unknown, but you have to be confident that you can do something. You know, you can run the business. If you, if you don't think you can do it, then why are you doing it? You know, I've seen a lot of times where people will get into business together and they'll get into business with a friend because it gives them comfort and they've never actually examined the strengths and weaknesses and skills of each partner. And you end up with two people that are very the same, similar in the partnership versus two people that are complementary, which I think is the ideal. You, you know, one person's good at, you know, sales and being in the spotlight and raising attention and the other person's good at bookkeeping and details and, you know, this kind of thing. Then you can divide the different roles of the business along the lines of which ones take advantage of who, the, which person's strength. And then you end up with a stronger business from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. What else do we have here? So next we talk about failure. Mm. This is from Alex and he says that I hear all the time that 97 or sometimes 99% of all startups fail within the first five years. I'm wondering if it's true and how failing is defined. Sounds like the entrepreneur who started it is bankrupt now. Maybe the owner just pivoted his idea or sold it to do something else. Well, you know, you read smarter than a startup. So maybe you can answer this question because it's, it's the, 
big problem I address in the beginning of the book, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you do talk about the Harvard study that shows um, that defines failure as uh, the the dissolution of the the company, the closing of the company. Um, but but it, failure can be defined in in many different ways. Uh, so that's that's the whole issue with giving statistics like this. Yeah, and you know what what many people don't realize is that the government doesn't actually keep statistics on businesses per se. Governments in all different places around the world keep statistics on the formation of a new corporation or the close windup of a corporation. Um, and so if you have, if you create a new corporation in, in a city somewhere, then you use that corporation to buy someone else's business and then they wind up their corporation if it's an asset sale. Over at the government office, they record it as a startup and a closure. They don't actually record it as a business being sold, right? Because they don't record that kind of data. And if a business was established and ran for 50 years, and then you came along, Hugh, and bought the shares of that company, then at the government office where they record corporations, there might not be anything recorded except maybe a change of directors. Whereas over at the tax authority, they might have a record of a, a change of controlling interest in the business, depending on which country you're in. And so, but, but the, the government office that keeps track of companies, to them, a company didn't open or close, just the directors changed. And so this is what's recorded. And then from that, different academics or people like me or people who comment on the business world try to then make assumptions about what's going on. And in my opinion, um, if you put money into something like a business, in order for it to be successful, the business has to thrive, which means I want to earn my investment back. So return my capital and then get me something more. To me, that's a success. And there's a lot of businesses out there who close, which is clearly a failure, but the ones who just kind of sputter along and don't really ever make any money, to me, it's a failure, even though other people may not count it as a failure. And what's worse is, are the businesses where the owner's working, like back in the last video, we talked about 80 to 100 hour work weeks. Someone's working 80 to 100 hours a week and they're drawing a, you know, some kind of little salary of $2,000 a month because that's all the business can afford. Well, they're subsidizing that business with free labor. And that, to me, isn't a successful business either. That's, that's a hobby. So um, I would agree that it's impossible to know exactly what percentage have failed. Uh, the first thing you have to do is define what your definition of failure is. And I would agree that it's a very high number because of just personally what I've seen throughout the years. Just you see a lot of businesses come and go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your standards being higher than perhaps most, which only define failure as um, closing. Well, I don't, I, you know, are my standards higher or have I just spent more time thinking about them? You know, the, the average person on the street who's not a business person, you know, they see their neighbor who is a business owner and they see, you know, a fancy car in the driveway and they see a hot tub in the backyard and they see them going on vacations. Well, is that a successful business person? A lot of people on the street would say, yeah, they're really successful in business. But 
I mean, that could all be debt. I mean, it could be a leased car and they could be borrowing money, you know, to get the hot tub and going on vacation on their credit cards. And, and that's something that I've seen a lot of over the course of time, because I get to see the financial statements of these businesses. And, you know, if you talk to someone like a bankruptcy trustee, when I've spent a lot of time talking to those guys over the course of the years in my capacity as an equipment appraiser, um, they'll tell you all the time that there are people who get caught up in the entrepreneur lifestyle who don't actually have a successful business. And so people can often be very surprised um, at what really goes on in some of these businesses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if they had the same information that, that you have, then they would, they would likely draw the same conclusion. Yeah, it, it probably. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then we've got, we've got one more here. I think we're moving on to a new topic. Valuation. And uh, the myth is uh, the value of a business is three times its annual sales slash income. That's by Steven. Yeah. So valuing a business as a multiple of revenue is not a real thing. It's something that probably comes to us out of the craziness of Silicon Valley, where you've got businesses that have no earnings. Um, People are trying to figure out how to make it worth more than maybe it really is. And everyone's gambling on the future prospects businesses are valued on multiples of their cash flow to the owner and smaller businesses are valued on multiples of SDE, which is seller's discretionary earnings, which includes, you know, money the owner would earn for working there full time. So it's the, it's all the money an owner would get working there full time as an owner operator of that business. And then once we get above the half million dollar of EBITDA mark, then the businesses tend to be valued at a multiple of EBITDA but not every business. And this is why rules of thumb are so hard because some businesses based on the industry might be valued on multiples of EBIT, for example. Mm -hmm. So if you have a, a, an industry where there's a lot of heavy equipment that wears out and needs to be replaced like long haul trucking or, you know, uh, like a foundation contractor business with lots of trucks and, 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 you know, earth moving equipment, they need that depreciation number because they have to constantly be reinvesting in the plant and equipment of that business. So we can't ignore it. Whereas with a little corner, you know, grocery store, maybe, you know, they've got shelving in there, which is going to last forever. Maybe we repainted every once in a while, you know, in that case, depreciation isn't so important. So it really depends on the industry, which measure of cash flow you use as far as uh, figuring out what the business is worth. And that's, that's why I don't like rules of thumb. I mean, a rule of thumb will let you know if a business is overpriced by double or not, but you can't really use a rule of thumb to make an offer, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So we still have more. So we're going to be coming back next time, me and Hugh, with some more business myths. But until then, we'll see you later. And don't forget, um, boy, we have we ever made it sound awful to start a business. If you want to buy an existing business that already has customers and profits, then you should be heading over to businessbuyeradvantage.com. Isn't that right, Hugh? Yeah. Perfect. All right. We'll see you next time, everyone.